Hello, welcome to Postcolonial Space to our weekly webinar. This is the first open webinar for February and I hope you all are doing well. And I had chosen a topic for today's webinar, a novel by Flora Nawapa called Ifuru. And I'm also teaching this novel this semester. So I thought I should kind of share whatever conversations we are having in our classrooms through a live webinar. And it also makes my job a little easier, but also makes it possible for me to share some of my thoughts about particular texts with you. And now you already are aware that this is part of our ongoing post-colonialism course. This is the 11th session. So I will keep welcoming you as you come in and then start talking about roughly about the novel itself, just briefly. And then I'm hoping we'll have more general questions and answers. And what I've also decided is that from now on, pretty much every Saturday, instead of having a fixed topic, it would be better if I did a question-answer session. And the best way of doing that would be for you to post questions whenever I post an announcement in the community tab about the forthcoming webinar. And that way I can have the questions in advance and try to answer them. Now, if Furu as a novel was the first African novel written by an African woman published in the English-speaking world. It was published by Heinemann Publishers, who specialize in African literatures, in 1966. Now, if you recall, Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe was published in 1958. And by the time Flora Nawapa writes Ifuru, Achebe was an established author. So she, uh, and this is probably an apocryphal story, but she sent her manuscript to Achebe and Achebe encouraged her to send it to Heinemann. He actually, some people say he actually paid for the shipping. So he was actively engaged in supporting Flora Nawapa in publishing the first novel. In my opinion, as you read it or discuss it, Ifuru is more of an African novel to me than things fall apart. And I'll explain my reasons for it. The reason I consider Ifuru more of an African novel is because it does not try formalistically to be a Western novel. Okay. It retains the way of speech, the way of expression, the way of explaining, or the way of storytelling that Flora Nawapa must have gathered from her own original culture, and she kind of represents it. So the novel doesn't just become a story from Ogota region of Nigeria. It also becomes an example of the storytelling tradition itself. Secondly, it's important because the novel is written by a woman with a female protagonist. Her name is, of course, Ifuru. And it captures the public and private lives of women in a collective culture. If you read the novel carefully, you will see men are pretty much peripheral to the story. The story is driven through the experiences of Ifuru, who's our main character, but also through 
the subculture around her which is surrounded by women so it is a womanist feminist novel and that's another aspect of the novel that i really like about so the way i teach it my students before they start discussing the novel they read certain texts about developing world or post colonial feminism so we first read chandra mohanty's under western eyes but also her book feminism without borders in which she discusses how to read third world feminism and how to read it differently and after they have read it they have developed certain vocabularies and understandings of not to just do a eurocentric reading of the novel that is when they go and start reading these novels Befuru by Flora Nawapa next week we'll be discussing Choice of Motherhood by Buchi Amishita then Michelle Cliff from the Caribbean Kurotolan Heather from India and Pakistan so these are the techniques that we use now to introduce the novel the main character is Befuru she's a young beautiful woman and from the very first line of the novel she's represented to us as this autonomous being who decides that she was going to marry of her own will right she picks up her own husband who is poor who cannot pay a dowry to her family and from the very start you know that there is something really peculiar about Ifuru she makes her own decisions and she's sticks to them and that she's also really really very adept at reading the culture in which she lives and performing her identity in it now she is the daughter of uh, a chief and the person adizu whom she marries is you know by their standards by the tribal standards a no account not doesn't even have enough money to offer a dowry for her hand in marriage so of course her father you know gets really angry at it and he sends a couple of young men to her house to bring her back and the way she handles that knowing that these men have come to take her back she doesn't even worry about that she just treats them as honorable guests gives them cola nuts has a wonderful conversation with them and in that process they already lose this idea that they had come to take her back they just treat her as a respectable housewife and you already see her tact there in order for her to you know just defang them she has to know her own tradition and she has to perform a certain identity so you immediately realize that ifuru knows the system in which she exists even though she goes against it she uses the cultural props to support herself And then we also learn through the novel how women support each other right how they become a cohort if they are newly married what's the relationship between her and her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law's sister and you see that even though these women do have their differences and sometimes can be really mean to each other but they do form a kind of sphere or relations of rule so to speak coming from chandra mohanty which supports them and which has certain ways of supporting each other and then we read ifuru's life which is kind of a tragic life okay her first husband 
It's a no account and she leaves him. She has a loss. She has a child, but the child dies and she has to cope with that. Then she goes and marries again. Her second husband is really good to her too. And they have a good life, but then he also blames her for adultery. He also finds another wife. And then eventually towards the end, Ifuru absolutely decides to leave him. And she chooses the path of living as a single woman. And she chooses that not because she read a book coming from England or all, but because there is a local myth already there of Ohamiri, of the lake goddess, the goddess to whom all the women pray. And she kind of becomes the figure of the lake goddess. Now, in terms of her life, she has a very successful life because she starts trading immediately that she gets married and she pretty much supports herself. And that's another aspect of Nigerian, but also other African cultures and subcultures where women are known to be traders, especially rural women, but also urban women. When you read Buchi Amachita's Joys of Motherhood, No Ego is a wonderful, wonderful businesswoman, right? So Ifuru is very successful, but she's also very generous with her wealth. So this is roughly the story that I just kind of captured the plot for you. But in so many ways, it also becomes a novel that can teach us about African womanism, also about a peculiar kind of feminism, which is not necessarily Western feminism, but it is a feminism informed by the narratives of local culture in the Oguta region, right, in the Igbo culture. So these are some of my thoughts about the novel. Now, what I also encourage my students, because in my graduate classes, I also have creative writing students, and they are taught to write a certain way and which is sort of a Eurocentric way of writing a novel. So I asked them to look at how an African writer sitting in Africa is writing a novel in English and how is that style different from what what is being taught over here. And then I also encourage them to not to approach the novel, you know, with the Eurocentric yardstick that has been given to them to measure a novel or to appreciate whether or not it's a good novel because, you know, that's also that those expectations of a good novel are also socially constructed. So these are some of the things that we discuss and I highly recommend that you should read the novel and teach it too. I remember about 12 years ago when I was teaching the novel, it wasn't available in print. This is actually the original 1966 print. And uh, so I had to like copy the novel and teach it. And then eventually Waveland Press reached out to me and said, here is a desk copy. We have started republishing it. So now it is a novel that actually is, is taught in a lot of African literature classes feminist literature classes, post-colonial literature. Here are some of my thoughts about the novel. And I'm not going to belabor the point, but what I wanted to highlight light was that if you want to read a story that tells a quintessentially feminist story of a female protagonist but not from a Eurocentric point of view. Now, if you read the novel, you'll see the 
colonizers are on the periphery of the story the story is driven by the lives and struggles of the women in the novel right there are a few controversial things too which we can talk about but if you ever want a novel that does that that is written during colonial times but that tells the quintessential native story from a women's point of view and tries to capture that this would be that novel so now i'll be happy to answer any questions that you might have uh, razi ahmed yes i consider ismat chuktai a feminist author uh, i mean you know feminism if you have read chandra mohanty you have to read it within the context of the place the time but ismat chuktai was you know a proponent of women's rights and was a very strong indian feminist author so yes i do consider her a feminist author but then you remember sometimes people say oh, she is not feminist enough and she is not fem the idea is they always have an a self constituted idea of what they consider feminism what we have to teach ourselves is to read anyone's feminism within the context of their own time and within the context of their own period what do they write about what issues do they invoke the way the novel works in my classes is you know it builds up because my class this semester is uh, post colonial women writers so after they read this novel then they go and read other women's writers so they kind of figure out not that they already have been taught that third world feminism or post colonial feminism is not a monolithic field but then because the novels are from seven different countries they also learn how different women from different regions have told their stories and what issues of feminism have they invoked in them and talked about them so that's how their idea of post colonial feminism gets complicated so i have a question Muhammad Wasif Sal did the masters use religion as a tool to strengthen their colonial agenda yeah i'm i, I don't call them masters but the colonizers did use religion in africa also in india i mean of course the missionaries were a huge part of the colonial project and and when you convert a native population you see that in the novel as well right her husband is a convert second husband that that does drive a wedge between the native religions and native cultural sensitivities and some people who convert to christianity in africa start looking at their own customs and traditions you know as primitive as the heathen practices and that's not just pertinent to christianity or or european colonialism too the north africans and west africans who convert to islam develop the same kind of world view about their native cultures and native religions and that is why people like chinwezu and others you know want to jettison the arab heritage or the islamic heritage because their idea is that we can only retrieve a purely african heritage if we wipe out these european and arab influences now whether you can do that or not but pretty much the pre-capitalistic invasions of africa especially north africa and west africa and then the post capitalist european colonization of africa both use religion as a mobilizing ideology 
but also an ideology that creates certain subjectivities that you know drive that that cleave the relationship with their own native cultures and ngugi thiango has a wonderful wonderful explanation of what kind of psychological trauma does it cause So Sajad, can we say Sir Edward Said is trying to debunk Western consistency in Orientalism, which is in disguise as surrogate and so on and so forth? Obviously, I mean, Said is not just trying to debunk. What Said is trying to suggest in Orientalism, and I have a whole series of lectures on Orientalism, is uh, this idea of how a discourse of knowledge. is produced and then it in itself then reproduces certain ways of looking at the orient that is his project not debunking he says very openly i'm not going to tell you this is true and this is false his project is to see how a discourse is developed according to which knowledge is produced degrees are given journals are produced that predispose people to look at a certain constituency a certain way and that is the project of orientalism if you have watched any of my other lectures i don't believe in binary structures i don't buy into east and west i am with fanon in the you know black skin white mask i want to go beyond that i will use any knowledge from anywhere in the world if it helps me fight for justice fight for equality i don't care if it comes from russia from algeria or from washington dc so i don't work with this binary structure of east versus west i think it's too simplistic and to assume that said works with that would also be very simplistic so or were the native religious lord used or funded by the colonizers to project their well i mean religion was used as a mobilizing ideology right in europe if you wanted to convince someone to give money to a colonialist project you could convince people hey we are going there taking the light of christ there could be a cynical way of mobilizing that but then there were also people genuinely sincere to their cause they wanted to bring the light of christ to what they considered a heathen people so there was a combination of both but missionaries usually were the first ones who would enter a culture and try to convert people and and get a toehold now whether or not they were connected to the colonial pro- project is debatable but eventually because they convert people that conversion itself basically encourages people to what to repudiate their earlier religion and faith right and that causes a cleavage right that happens in pre-colonial times as well right i mean those of you who are from india or pakistan unless your parent your great 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 families you know immigrated from persia or from an islamic country our ancestors were all either hindus or you know pagans so the way our ancestors accepted islam wasn't just that we are going to develop a different way of life it also then presupposes that you will start disdaining the religion that you have left and that 
doesn't even need to be taught because that is what your religion is trying to save you so the same mechanism works with missionaries in colonialism and elsewhere so which teaches us another thing is that no religious discourse whether colonial or pre-colonial is unmotivated you know it doesn't just say accept our religion but it also says is leave the religion of your fathers and your forefathers and then that develops a divide a divide in families in blood relations based on the basis of religion so that in a way then aggravates the situation in a given in any given culture so that's what happens in ifuru as well but in other african cultures as well is the tension between those who convert to christianity and those who don't and, and then how do they relate to each other so yes religion does play a role in that every religion offers itself as universal and as better than others especially the three monotheistic religions but our our expl- understanding of them is usually pretty thin and most of us are in today's age practice a certain religion because we were born in it those of you living in pakistan you know militantly protecting islam would be militantly protecting hinduism if you were born like 200 miles west of the border in a hindu brahmin family or whatever so half of the times it's just a question of accident of birth but in case of colonialism since the missionaries come in and they can try to convert people they sometimes very convincingly and then they develop their own churches and then there are your native cultures and those tensions then emerge within that culture uh, you can see those tensions playing out when uh, for example oroko is here from kenya when ngugi chango decides to write in gikuyu right uh, before that his name was james ngugi right his family had converted to christianity but in 1977 he decides he was no longer going to use his european name and that he goes back to his own culture right it's a huge move but because of that move then he starts writing his own native language and he becomes more engaged in his native culture in terms of his writing and the theater that he produces so sometimes you have to jettison at least the original markers or the apparent markers of the religion that your family might have adopted and even though you know that you can't really retrieve what is lost right you at least adopt that personality but even ngugi is not necessarily a nativist you know i just taught last week his essay creating space for a 100 flowers to bloom a video of it is also available on the channel where he basically says yes we need to retrieve our own cultures but we need to accept materials from the west so that we can mold them and use them and enrich our own cultural production right so even he is not so militant as to say no we must wipe out anything that has come from the west what he's saying is let's use it to enrich and write in our own languages but if you are interested on in the topic of what happens to what kind of thought is being produced and developed by these scholars on the channel we have videos on chenwezu i have videos on ngugi chango i have a 
couple of videos on phenon these are all the people who are dealing with issues of individual and cultural identities and how do they develop post colonialism or during the colonial times what are the psychological implications of that and what are the sociological implications of the colonial experience one thing that i would encourage you to avoid is to work with just simple binaristic structure this dualistic structure of east and west and i think that is not useful in developing a more complex way of negotiating with each other or or engaging with each other we have to be able to say i believe in this you believe in that your ancestors did this but let's see if we can have a conversation there is nothing wrong in calling the former colonizers for their atrocities and accounting for them but i think what is wrong is if we make that just the only issue that we want to talk about but not talk about the present or possibilities of a better future and that too without effacing the difference right or without acknowledging that everything is okay that's kind of where i stand on these issues so to sum up you know just since we started with ifuru published in 1966 by flora noapa who eventually goes on to become a big name in african literary studies who also launches the first ever feminist african press tana press which publishes a lot of other african authors and then ifuru itself is a great example of a novel that tells the story of a peculiar particular nigerian culture and within that the experiences of a female protagonist and her life in that culture along with her relationships with other women so if you ever need a story that does that that gives you an autonomous but also a smart beautiful and intelligent female character and if you need it for your own reading or for your teaching this is the novel that i will highly recommend munazzar bani for how long do the african asian writers will have to carry the burden of post coloniality can they ever be liberated of this case of colonial past that's a really interesting question uh, i don't know i mean i i think that they do and do not carry the burden of post coloniality because if you look at india pakistan wherever there were written scripts people don't really care if they are colonial or post colonial they have been writing and they continue to write the reason they become post colonial part of it is because people like us treat them as post colonial authors and that's a huge debate in post colonial studies as well uh, and i am not unaware of that and the debate is why should we consider the colonial experience as the most defining experience and i'm not insisting that we should i do that because i'm a post colonialist right if i'm a south asianist even then i will have to account for that but if i'm a south asianist who specializes in india it will then depend on which part of india south asia which language do i work with you know malayalam tamil whichever and then i'll go into details about that i have the choice of making it a completely apolitical scholarship or 
political scholarship. It's also all a question. I don't think so that the post-colonial authors are passively sitting there being non-political. It's we the scholars who do that. If you choose to just write about non-colonial experience, there is nothing wrong with it. That would be a separate field of South Asian studies or Urdu studies or Hindi studies. To me, it doesn't bother me. If I mobilize anyone as a post-colonial author, I'm not saying that that's the only defining feature. What I'm basically saying is that this is the kind of struggles people had while they were in the contact phase of colonialism. And this is how they coped with it. And this is how they live as a post-colony and what kind of cultures developed there. That, to me, is a more important question. But otherwise, I don't have an answer to that. Okay, I have Kasthimi. Please, would you tell us about the concept of decolonialism? Well, uh, I can't really dwell on it long. Decolonization or decolonial studies as a concept, you know, started by Walter Manvolo in his book, The Darker Side of Modernity. I partially agree with his approach where a lot of people read decolonial studies differently. My reading of it is that what he's trying to introduce, at least in that book, is a mode of thinking which doesn't rely on the Western cosmologies and the Western modes of thinking, and especially within that, the instrumental reason, like the reason which is connected to instrumentality and is the biggest driver of capitalism. And so what he's then encouraging in that book, and there is a critique of post-colonial studies in that book, which is pretty thin, because most people who critique post-colonialism make it into something and then critique it. It's mostly a straw man argument, because to say that post-colonialism doesn't do decolonial studies is some, I mean, if you read anyone, all of us are doing that. So... In Manuolo's work, then, he goes to South America, he goes to Latin America, and he then tries to introduce what cosmologies people used, how did they think the world, how did they think nature, how do they still do that, and can we make that into a dominant way of thinking in opposition to the instrumental reason of the West. Right? That is the project of decolonialism, not jettisoning Western thought, but coming up with new modes of thinking the world, right, and living in it. Now, if you make it nativist, if you just make it into a complete erasure of any other knowledge, then it can also become deeply destructive. Okay, so if you look at India, the entire focus on dharma studies, right, and dharma studies being able to answer all our questions in its extreme form, then it becomes, you know, RSS, it it becomes BJP, right? It has the possibility of becoming that. If you go to the Islamic world, same thing, Sharia will solve all our problems, right? But depending on whose interpretation you are using, it can spawn you know, the most tolerant societies in the world, but it can also spawn the most destructive people on the planet. So depending on what you consider decoloniality, I think it would be deprivileging any claims to normality or any claims to what is proper, what is not. That would be a good start. So for example, 
in the Pakistani academy, a form of decolonialism would be in the English departments insistent consistently that no, British literature is not the only great literature here. We should be able to study our own literature published by our own people. We should be able to study literature in translation. That would be a tactical decolonial move, right? To, to rework the way we think English studies. Now, why English studies? Because that is what we do. I'm a professor of literary studies. You know, my job is not to just say philosophy is like that and geography. No, that's so to, if you really want to decolonize English departments, then you go and change the sensibilities, you change the curriculum, you allow for people to study their own native literatures and not insist that if you want to write a dissertation about you know, Faz Ahmed Faz, you have to pick a Western author and write a dissertation with a comparison of Faz Ahmed Faz with Pablo Neruda, right? Uh, or Neruda is not really Western, but... So that is what I understand by decolonialism. Is it something that we could use? Absolutely. If, if we could break the back of instrumental reason and replace it with more communicative and more humane form of interacting with each other, that would be a decolonial move. Do we absolutely need, uh, you know, Hindu knowledge or Christian knowledge or knowledge of Shango or no? We can incorporate that knowledge, right? Do we need to do it in Urdu or Hindi? No, any language is okay, as long as it's geared towards deprivileging certain things that are taken as normative in Western Academy or in our own native cultures. Then we also take whatever is enabling. If there is something that we find could be useful in our own culture, if we tweak it, we need to take it. We don't need to say this is from the West and this is from the East. So that's roughly my understanding of it. Now, of course, it is my understanding of it, right? It is deeply subjective. It is based in my experience, my lived experience and my own philosophical leanings, right? So keep that in mind, please, because there are no definitive answers. Let me know if I'm saying your name right, Spurti, that uh, both in India and Pakistan, you can see that, that there is a lot of colonized thought that still exists. And sadly, even some very highly educated people, you know, upper middle class, they pride in, you know, in having an English accent, in not knowing their own culture, in going to English medium schools. In Pakistan, if you go there, if you're amongst female scholars, not scholars, but teachers, the ones who went to the convent have their own exclusive group. No one else can enter that. Uh, God forbid if you are from you know, a government college because you are not really sophisticated enough. All of these are colonial ways of looking at what constitutes value, right? Uh, or, uh, you know, people would very openly tell you in Pakistan, in my exchanges, that so-and-so is Pendu. By, by that, what they mean is that so-and-so has a rural background, went to government school, and hence maybe may not be intellectually good enough to be a professor and all. And all of that is there. I would love to have some decolonization where people turn around and say, no, you know, simply because you have a better accent doesn't make you a better people person, right? Or a better scholar. 
or speaking English more like the English. So these are legacies of colonialism, which we have internalized, which are part of a lot of middle class posturing in India and Pakistan. You will see it represented in African literature as well. Okay, the in the beginning of Devil on the Cross, the main character, like Waringa, who is a secretary, has a secretarial job. What does he tell her about us? That she had tried to use creams to make herself look fairer. She used, you know, a steam iron to straighten her hair, right? It's because that is the standard of beauty that she had internalized through our colonial education but also through you know living in a colonial culture right? and that's how deep that influence is in people's minds so there we could use some decolonization where we could posture that it's okay to have an accent it's okay to take pride in our own culture and write about it not to prove that it's better than anyone else but to create space for it within that given culture so i can tell you from my own example is when i go to pakistan and give talks i make it a point to tell people that i am literally from a village that i am a pendu person because they find it kind of odd that you know i am a professor in america but that i don't come from that urban middle class you know upper crust of our society so i take pride in it and it kind of some of the people they kind of feel perplexed at that because they don't associate what i do and the way i speak or the way i try to explain things with those class of people right so we need to break those stereotypes but these intellectual colonization it's a subject that isn't just the post colonial theorists came up with there is a set of essays by molana modudi the famous pakistani scholar or indian scholar of religion from 1936 and 37 that i had cited in one of my essays where he says that there are two ways in which the colonizers conquer us physical and intellectual and what he says is that you can get rid of the physical occupation but it's the intellectual occupation that stays for a longer time and that we need to conquer and my idea is that you don't need to like just excise that knowledge and take it out and form find some kind of purest knowledge but that you develop a critical approach to that knowledge where you can assert your own opinions and say these are my reasons for that and in order to do that as scholars in any of the post colonies you will have to then go against the dominant grain of the intellectual elite who tend to be very eurocentric even now and certain policies are also very eurocentric so also like to not to belabor the point is the reason pretty much most of the things that are on my channel and that i talk about are related to post colonial studies obviously is because i am a post colonialist so that doesn't necessarily mean that post colonialism is the end all and be all of it. but that is my area of expertise that is what i teach that is what i publish about if that bothers you i mean of course you have the right and absolute privilege to do whatever you want with your life 
okay you can absolutely not worry about post colonialism and its debates it's entirely up to you but i have realized is that it enables me to talk about you know a lot of other issues and do keep in mind as purthi just pointed out that yeah political colonization is still a thing it's still happening sometimes it is direct right occupation of territory and then maintaining your control over it and sometimes it is ideological where people living anywhere else in the world are responding to certain economic imperatives but also in the ideological imperatives that either come from the west or can now come from china sometimes come from india right and all these other powerful nations and so those imperatives are still there they see that i mean pretty much here as well in united states the religious conservatives are a huge political force and they are increasingly becoming politically more and more powerful in pakistan i see religious political parties gaining more and more strength and same in india you can already see the the dominant hindu fundamentalist groups are becoming stronger and stronger and then what they go and try to do through acts of politics but also through acts of coercion is actually colonize people ideologically and physically who are weaker than them and try to mandate their view view of world view on them their force their opinion on them and all of these are micro or sometimes huge colonial acts and so that's why people like spivak and others you know we also talk about internal colonizations they can be also on the base of caste on the base of region and that we need to be attentive to those if you look at my last book it was on isis and one of the reasons i wrote it was because i didn't know much about isis so i wanted to go and study this phenomena and its practice and see what are the texts that they are reading how are they self perpetuating themselves how are they making themselves appealing to each other and that was a critique of one particular religious interpretation of islam if you look at my book before that which came in 2016 which was about the american conservative right and it was about neoliberal right but also religious conservatives but the question there was the same how do they see the world why they see it the way they do and what do they want to accomplish and you'll see there are a lot of similarities between the two at the end of the day there are a lot of similarities in what these conservative groups want to accomplish they all want a world in which people live according to the mandates of what they think is permissible and what they think is not they always will have this other that needs to be either excised or removed or converted at best so it's important to keep an eye on these constituencies and where they exist and what are they trying to accomplish to be very honest i believe that religion can be something that can give people a lot of solace right and faith can make people better people i have no doubt about that i've seen people who for whom religion does that but mobilize differently any religion christianity judaism islam any other religion mobilize differently politicized as an exclusive tool of oppression religion can also be a hugely destructive force in the world 
right and so we have to keep that in mind because religion at the end of the day is what what you me and everyone else practices any body of knowledge spiritual and others and so there is a lot of human collective will and agency involved in that it's like uh, i think we have exhausted all our questions so you know that's it thank you so much for joining me today and uh, i'll be back next week please do join me and i'll announce it on the community tab of the channel we also now have a facebook page facebook group actually just look for post colonial space and it will show up and please do join us there and as i mentioned in one of the previous uh, videos we do also have a podcast which is also called post colonial space it is available on spotify on apple on google podcast anchor just put in post colonial space and it will show up and that that way you can download the audio versions of most of these conversations so thank you so much for your support and i will now see you next week and until then take care and what do i say as always peace and love